Welcome to Conversation Mill. My name is Rebecca Dale and I am the host of the show. I have a passion for sharing how the creation of thriving local economies benefits us all. I'm fascinated by how we come together to form our communities on a macro and micro scale and how our histories and stories when shared can not only motivate and inspire, but can facilitate understanding. As our communities, large and small, bring back a more progressive Main Street, individuals are stepping out to pursue their passions and local leaders are pushing back against corporate greed. It's time to engage these community leaders and small business owners in conversation. What are the driving forces behind their courage and success and how can we continue to build communities that embrace diversity, support the local economy, and create a healthy ecosystem for the culture at large? Join us now in conversation. Addiction touches us all in some way, shape, or form. Whether we are dealing with a current addiction or in recovery, or if someone we love is struggling with addiction. There are a plethora of opinions out there about treating addiction or getting addicts off the street and into treatment, and then what that treatment should look like. My guest today, Amory Maori, is the executive director of Maui Recovery, an eight-bed residential recovery here in Maui. And he knows firsthand how addiction can affect you and your family's life. As individuals and communities, we need to start having more conversations around addiction and recovery to start really moving the needle on the effectiveness of recovery services, especially those supported by the state. But first, we need to listen to the voices of those working in recovery and those that have chosen recovery over their addiction. Amory opens up and allows us into his story, as well as sharing Maui Recovery's mission. Join us now in conversation. Can you start by giving us a little background on Maui Recovery? Sure, yeah. So Maui Recovery is a uh, residential treatment center. Uh, We're licensed by the state of Hawaii as a what's called a STF, uh, which is a special treatment facility. And basically what that means is that uh, we operate out of a residential uh, center. So STFs... um, oversee smaller, less institutional facilities. So typically with eight beds or less, these are like group care homes or things that are occurring in a residential neighborhood. So, which speaks a little bit to what my recovery is, which is a, a less institutional, more homey feeling. Um, we treat primarily addiction, uh, but we also treat mental health. Our philosophy is really a holistic approach to treatment. So, we look at both the traditional clinical side of things, uh, psychotherapy, you know, cognitive behavior therapy, um, as well as uh, really trying to address the whole person, right? So uh, what we call therapeutic lifestyle change. Uh, so nature immersion therapy, equine therapy, surf therapy, getting people reconnected with nature with a sense of joy, mm. um, getting them reconnected with their emotional selves, their physical selves, spiritual selves. What was your journey to become executive director of Maui Recovery? Yeah, it's funny. I, looking back, it feels like just stumbling yeah. through. You know, it's like, <laughs> it feels like every, my whole career has just been a series of like stumbling into it. Um, but I, you know, I've been in recovery myself for some time now. And <clears throat> I started my own personal recovery in New York. Mm. I was working in Long Island. I, I started my recovery in Long Island and um, knew I wanted to help people, but didn't was not prepared to go to school for long enough to help people. Um, And so I started off as what's called a peer advocate, which essentially says that your lived experience is is your education and then Mm -hmm. does some training on ethics and getting people in a place where they can help people. Um, And so I got involved in peer advocacy in Long Island uh, and worked worked in that field for a while and became close with a a clinician, uh, Lisa, who uh, knew the owner of Maui Recovery. And he was looking for a new clinical director. And after a couple of years in the field, he uh, had headhunted Lisa to come out and join my recovery. And Lisa and I had uh, become very close as a working relationship. And um, she brought me along with her. And so I came on board as as the program manager at that point in time. And then after a couple of years, took over as exec director. Do you mind sharing a little bit with us about your personal recovery 
journey? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of follows a a typical story in a certain way. Like I had a, I had a good family life. I had a good upbringing. I had um, a lot of blessings, you know, I was grew up middle-class and very loving family and nothing really like wrong per se. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But I just, I got introduced to smoking weed at a really young age and I started smoking weed when I was nine or 10 years old. And then, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area and so there was a lot of availability there for psychedelics and, um, and, you know, and other drugs. And so I became pretty involved with psychedelics when I was a teenager and, you know, 13 and 14 and pretty quickly, um, I, I then injured my back and and mm. got access to some opiates, which is, you know, of course you hear this all the time. Yeah. Um, and quickly realized that opiates were very expensive and heroin was much cheaper and, you know, and I was off to the races. So, and I struggled a long time with, you know, co-occurring mental health challenges, panic disorder and other mental health challenges that that I was self-medicating with. Um, and, uh, and then eventually, you know, it's funny with recovery, like, I talk to family members sometimes or or individuals when they're coming into the center that f- feel hopeless a lot, mm-hmm. right? They feel like there's just no shot for this person. And it's funny because there were so many things in my life that should have gotten me sober or that should have made me realize that I needed to change the way I was living. Yeah. And they never did. Like people died and 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 I was had legal troubles and, and I burned bridges with my family and I was homeless and all this. And then one day I just woke up and I was just done. And that was it. So um, it's for me, it was just a, it's a reminder now that like, I don't think anybody's ever beyond hope, even if a million things have happened that should have worked. Right. So, and I have a question a little bit later on. I think that kind of lines up with that for you, but, but I really want to dig into what Maui recovery is doing. Um, And I want to read this right from my notes because I want to get it right. But the Maui recovery mission statement says we provide dynamic programs that address the whole self, transforming a shame core to a love core and cultivating meaningful human connection, intimacy, and purposeful living. And I want to kind of break down a little bit of that mission statement. Can we start with how do you define the whole self? Yeah, so it's kind of what I was talking about a little bit in the beginning where we're looking at these multiple facets of self, right? And so a lot of times I think people look at addiction as like a isolated sort of like part of self and really it's when a part of ourselves becomes that ingrained as addiction often does it's it's interwoven with all these other aspects of self so it's true that we do have different aspects of self and sometimes it can be kind of isolated if you have just sort of this a new habit or something Mm -hmm. it can be kind of you can kind of surgically go in and remove it and just pull that piece out and I don't think that's usually the case for addiction. It's, it tends to be interwoven in many aspects of our life. And so I think a lot of times the idea is like, I'm just going to fix this addiction. Like I'm going to stop drinking or stop using, and then that'll just sort of fix it. And it's usually not the case, right? Mm-hmm. It usually has to do with like really deep seated um, parts of ourselves that need to be looked at. Yeah. Um, so, and that's physical, emotional, spiritual, cognitive, all those the, the next part kind of talks about transforming the shame core to a love core. Let's talk about that shame core. Yeah. How do you guys define that? Or what are you talking about when, when that's in the mission statement? Yeah, it's such a good question. Mm-hmm. I think the large part of recovery is um, is being willing to grieve the loss of the addiction mm-hmm. in yourself and also forgive yourself for the things that you've done. Mm-hmm. Um I don't think there's really any way to recover successfully without integ- without really looking at who you were and the things that you did in the past and and finding a way to make sense of that. Yeah. I think that if you don't find a way to make sense of that, you just have sort of stopped drinking, but you're going to live with the pain of the hurt that almost every addict causes in their life, whether to themselves or to other loved ones and to varying degrees. But I remember like the first time that my therapist really that I was working with in New York really was the first person to really ever say to me, like, you know, the things that you did, you're accountable for them. You have to be accountable for the the things that you did, but you're not, but those were, that was you trying to survive as best you could with, with the resources that you had and you need to forgive yourself for what you did, you know? Mm -hmm. And again, it's like, this is not just throw it out and say, I was an addict and so I can just wipe my hands clean of all that and walk away. Right. Cause like, 
we have to be accountable and responsible, but it does mean like finding a way to really <clears throat> forgive yourself and, and, and love yourself. And so, and that was such a weight off my shoulders. And I've seen that again and again, working with individuals when we can really like drill down to the idea that you are not inherently bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're not inherently flawed. It also gives the possibility of recovery even room to be there, right? Like if if the belief is that we're inherently flawed, then there's no room to ever not be inherently flawed. And so there's no there's no real room for for recovery to grow. Right. You know? And that shame piece, it seems like it's very vital in keeping people in addiction because if you go to recovery and like you said, you have those feelings of of shame of things you did, it's easy to the gym, just jump back into the addiction that sort of wipes that out of your mind for the time that you're yeah it's stuck in addiction are you do you see a lot of that with people relapsing is that a lot at the core of it of yeah i think i mean it's hard to say right because right, like who yeah. knows when somebody relapses um but i definitely think that it's hard to it's hard to really love yourself and be an active addiction like those two mm -hmm. things are, are don't really go together right and so kind of by virtue of that you know, if you're not doing that, then it gives room for the addiction. And if you are doing that, it kind of doesn't give room for the addiction. And I think that addiction, a lot of times, is, it's, I mean, it's a self-medication, but it's also kind of, I think a lot of times we as addicts are kind of gluttons for punishment as well. I think it's a self mm -hmm. sort of, you know, we're sort of a self, what is that, flagellation, right? Like yeah. sort of a whipping yeah. of ourselves, you know? And so I think if you're, yeah, if you don't resolve that shame and and guilt around it, then it's easy to like tell yourself the story that this is, who I am and this is what I deserve and I just sort of go back into the darkness. Yeah. Where do you at Maui Recovery start to address that shame that people feel as they're walking through the door? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, really that's our that's our clinicians mm -hmm. do that work, right? So that's yeah. there's a lot of different ways to do that depending on what the person needs. But I think part of it's also just the atmosphere, right? Like I think when a lot of people first come to treatment, they're really nervous. And, you know, a lot of our a lot of our staff members have been through it themselves or in recovery and um and it's a very welcoming environment. I think when people even first walk into the facility, it feels like feels like home, you know, feels homey. Yeah. And so that's part of it. I think just the context that you set for people. Like I think if you like again, when you look at like traditional institutions or jails, like it does not feel like you're doing well. Like it does not feel like you should not be ashamed, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're in like the, you know, the the fluorescent lit white halls and it, it doesn't feel like you can take a breath and relax and be like, I'm actually okay. You know? Um, so that's a part of it is the context. Um, but a lot of it's just the clinical work that happens and that's specific to each individual. Mm -hmm. And then the next step of that is talking about the self love part. Cause you guys talk about this love core in your mission statement. Is that when you're talking about that love core, is that, starting with self-love and then learning how to love other things in their life and other people? Yeah, I think really, like, it's really about self. I mean, mm -hmm. learning how to love other, I mean, that's all good stuff, but that's, like, our primary focus is the individual, right? Mm -hmm. And I think then everything else comes from, is born out of that. And I think that love, I mean, think about, like, shame core versus love core. I think another way to think about that is, like, an unintegrated versus an integrated self, yeah. right? Like, shame is, is a fractured self. Like there's a part of ourselves we don't want to see, that we don't want to look at, that we're ashamed of, right? It's like we put it into the basement. And so it's a, it's like a, it's like you get a splinter and then it gets infected until you remove that splinter. Like if that splinter, the body tries to like isolate it and it's yeah. like, we're going to put it over there and it just keeps festering and festering. And so I think that the love core versus the shame core is like an unintegrated or a fractured self versus a whole self, right? And again, that's part of like, part of that integration is like really, calling a spade a spade which is like i did probably hurt people and do things and it's and it's really looking at it which can be very painful like shame in a certain way is easier because you just stick it away somewhere you don't have to yeah. look at it you know you just say like i'm just a bad person i don't have to look at my actions i've just come to accept that um and integration is like you have to pass it through your conscious awareness and and take accountability for it and then you can actually integrate it um so it's like a it's like a it's like a fractured self versus a whole self. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when individuals are coming into Maui recovery, what level of recovery are they at when they're coming in? Are they walking off the street like, hey, 
they went to their family or they went to a friend and said, I, I need help and they're coming right in? Or are they coming from, uh, you know, getting sober to the, you know, getting clean and then coming in as what level are they at? Yeah. So it depends. Um, <clears throat> we don't offer, my recovery is not, doesn't offer detox services, okay. um, but we do work with a medical doctor who can provide those services while they're in our facility. Um, so we can, we've had people, for example, come in that are, that were drinking the night before mm -hmm. um, or who are drunk that day um, or using. Um, we've had people come in from other treatment centers, like maybe a more intensive treatment center, sometimes like in Utah or uh, somewhere where it's a little stricter and then are looking for a step-down program and have come to us. Uh, we've had people come who are sort of in between those two places who maybe put together a couple of days of sobriety. Uh, we've So a really a, a pretty broad range. What we don't work with is anybody who's a danger to themselves or mm -hmm. others, right? So we're not a, a hospital level of care. So if somebody is, the things that we look for obviously are any sort of suicidal ideation, any sort of uh, desire to hurt other people um, or really severe mental health issues that would require like a psychiatric, like a really intensive psychiatric facility. Yeah. Um, but other than that, we're pretty well equipped to handle a pretty broad spectrum of clients. Yeah. And since you're receiving clients at all kind of different stages of their recovery, how do you work with those individuals? Do you have counselors that are working with people on an individual level and group? Or how do you start to address? Because everyone's got to be at a different level of kind of that self-love we're talking about if they're coming in from these different programs. <clears throat> yeah, so that's like the hardest part of residential treatment, especially <laughs> what's when you have what's called open enrollment. Mm -hmm. So like some outpatient or inpatient facilities, less common, but have uh, what's called closed enrollment, which means like you have, for example, 20 people and the same 20 people for 12 weeks. And then at the end of the 12 weeks, you get another 20 people. Right. And it really helps to have a, then you have a idea of where you're going and everybody's kind of on the same page and everybody's sort of moving through this thing at the same time. And that's not how we work and not how most treatment centers work. So in a group, for example, because we do group and individual therapy, in a group, you might have somebody who came in yesterday and somebody who's leaving the following day, which are going to be at very different places, right? right? Emotionally, physically, mentally. And so you, the the dance of the therapist is to provide group material that can cater to both of those people. But really, it's funny, like, the you know, our therapists, our therapists are incredible and all of our staff is amazing, but really we're just there to like hold the container. Actually, most of the therapeutic work happens between clients. Mm. And so the way that to sort of circle back to your question, uh, the way to handle that when people are at different places is to, is to utilize that, right? It becomes an opportunity then for like peer mentorship basically, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can empower the individual who might be further along that integration process or uh, to really step up and be a leader and say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm sort of, I'm gonna lead by example. And it's going to be a hundred times more effective than a therapist telling the client who's really struggling mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to one of their peers showing up for them. Um, and it's cool. It's kind of this perpetual thing where like whoever come, like the most recent person to come in becomes, gets sort of taken under the wing of all the other clients. And then eventually as those clients leave, they they do the same thing. They take the next batch of clients under their wing and it's sort of a perpetual mentorship program mm -hmm. that happens. So has some downsides, that open enrollment, but also I think has a lot of therapeutic benefit. And how many clients do you guys generally have at, at one time? Like if you were full? Eight, eight clients. We have eight beds. Okay. Yeah, room for eight. Do you think having a smaller recovery center like that versus something that might have 20, 30 people is better or is it six of one, half a dozen of another? Yeah, I think there's just different values to each, right? Yeah. <clears throat> like we get a lot of individual attention. I think that probably, I think if if all things were equal, there would actually be a benefit to having like 20 people. Like if you could provide the same staff ratio and yeah. the same level of care and make sure none of those 20 slip through the, the cracks, I think you would actually um, be able to absorb like shockwaves better. Yeah. Sometimes in a facility this small, like if one person has a bad day, like, you know, and we have six clients, like five clients can't absorb one person's really bad day, right? But like 19 clients couldn't absorb yeah. that. And so, but the reality is the most of the time, if you have 20 beds, you probably don't have, you know, we have, mm. I think 14 staff members um, and 
you know, if we have seven clients, that's a two to one, like a 20 bed facility isn't going to have 40 staff members. Right. So a lot like in practice, I think it's, we probably get better treatment than a lot of bigger facilities, but yeah. in theory, I think because of what I said before, you know, it's really comes down to the client interactions is where a lot of the healing happens. And so if you have a really strong, bigger group, I think that could be beneficial, but mm-hmm. yeah. I kind of want to ask you about that staffing a little bit because have you seen or, and maybe you don't know, but why don't more people get involved in drug recovery from a, uh, I guess, what is, whether it's from a clinical standpoint or like you from a, a leadership standpoint, what would, why don't we have a ton of people applying for those jobs and being like, yeah, I want to do this because it's mm-hmm. clearly a big issue in our society right now. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple of different reasons why. I think a lot of people do. Like, there's a lot of a lot of counselors or people who work in the treatment field are in recovery, but obviously we have far many people, far more people in recovery than we have counselors. So somewhere along the line, that doesn't add up, right? Right. Um, I think part of it's just is um, there's a pretty high barrier to entry, right? So like, if you want to practice clinically, like you're really looking at minimum six years of school, right? Like Mm -hmm. if you're lucky, you get a master's in two years, probably three years, you got to have your bachelor's first. And then you're looking at, you know, probably an unpaid internship. Um, And then maybe you get hired, maybe you don't. If you do get hired in healthcare, you're probably not getting paid very much. Right. So it's like, so you got to go into private practice. and, And so like right off the bat there, you know, for a lot of people in recovery, depending on how long their addiction went, you know, they don't really have time to just like take six years off and go to school, right? And right. be like, okay, I'll just start my whole life over and then I'll have an unpaid internship for a year or whatever, you know? And so even if <clears throat> like uh, most states have what's called, um, uh, like in Hawaii, it's called a CSAC, which is a credentialed substance abuse counselor, which is basically a license to work specifically with substance abuse. And it's a shorter license, it's only two years. But even that's, it's a lot, it's two years. And then mm-hmm. <clears throat> to be able to be, for a facility to bill insurance for your services, you have to do 6,000 hours. Wow. 6,000 hours. It's a long, this three years of full-time work. Yeah. Right? So, <clears throat> I mean, obviously there's some exceptions to that and that's not the, you know, don't quote me on that exactly, sure. but because, yeah. you know, if you have a if you have a bachelor's degree, it's 4,000 hours and you can work underneath a supervisor. But point being that it's a still a big barrier to entry, mm-hmm. which is why I think that, and I'm surprised why it doesn't have it. A lot of other states do. Uh, the peer certification is a really great thing because like it was, I was in that exact same boat. I was like, I want to help people. But <clears throat> reality is that if I needed to spend three years right off the bat, like getting my CSAC, I did my CSAC and my master's while I was, I did my CSAC while I was a peer and then was able to move into a CSAC position and then got my master's while I was a CSAC and was able to move into a leadership. So I was able to kind of stack it. But if I hadn't been able to do that, then I probably wouldn't be here. So yeah. And Talk to me a little bit about about that time in your life when you were doing that peer counseling and then going, you know, going to school to try to what how did you be, what was that like? I think it it helps people to understand like it like a full-time job on top of a full-time job on top of your own recovery. Yeah, it sucked. It, sucked. <laughs> it really sucked. Um I I really it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was really hard. I think I was really motivated, you know, really wanted to I really felt like I was helping and like making a difference and and that was a big deal. But but when I finished, by the time I finished my master's, just a couple of years ago, I was so burned out. Yeah. I mean, to be, like you said, to be working a full-time job and then going home and sitting there and grinding away for hours on schoolwork or, it was rough. It's not fun. Um, But I do think it was worth it. Mm -hmm. I do think it was worth it in the end. It really afforded me the opportunity to continue to do what I love and really be better at it, mm-hmm. you know? So, but it, it sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to do it again. <laughs> I was considering a PhD and I was like, man, I'm so done. I can't do it anymore. So. <laughs> the, the last item in the mission statement that I wanted to talk to you about was, um, you guys talk about purposeful living. Again, what's purposeful living to Maui recovery? Because I think we all kind of, when you strip away everything, that's uh, to me, it seems like that's all we're all looking for that, whether we're in recovery or not, is like, what's my purpose? Am I being purposeful once we strip away the ego and all the other things? Um, but I just wanted to kind of hear from your point of view, what's purposeful living and what what is that at Maui recovery? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it, like the in our, 
to understand that you have to look at first how you define recovery, Hmm. right? So I talk about this sometimes in classes, like what's the difference between abstinence and recovery, right? Because those are, we, we have two different words for them. So they probably mean two different things, right? So abstinence is, is not drinking or using or, you know, stopping a behavior specifically. Um, and recovery is a much broader thing than that. I mean, sometimes you'll hear people introduce themselves like in AA meetings is, hi, I'm, you know, John Doe and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. And my understanding of why they put that grateful in there is because, and this was true for me too, is that recovery really forced me to look at a lot of different aspects of self, right? I mean, it's not enough to just stop drinking because it's not just about the drinking. It's about, um, it's about those underlying deep rooted issues. And you have to really understand what those are in order to effectively change them. And so mm-hmm. recovery is really an overhaul of the whole system, right? It's like the whole system needs to get overhauled. And usually when people start that process, they want to continue it. Like mm-hmm. you start digging, you start finding, you're like, oh my God, I'm really messed up like we're all really pretty messed up in a lot of ways yeah i remember taking a in school taking a child and adolescent psychology class and coming out of it being like how are we not all we're so fragile as these little children like how are we not all totally whacked out and then a couple years later realizing that we are all totally whacked out it's like oh that's how we end up um and so you know a purposeful living is that's what recovery is like it, it has to be it has to really be like finding a reason and let me preface that by saying also that like i think addiction is also sometimes described as like a slow suicide right it's like a Mm -hmm. slow ending of our own life essentially and in order to have the sort of like spark of hope for recovery you really have to make a decision that you want to be alive and you want to like be here like you don't want to tap out you really want to be engaged and you want to be living life on life's terms and in order to do that, you have to have a purpose, right? Like yeah. we have to find a reason why we want to do that and make a decision really for ourselves that we do want to be here. And I tell people sometimes, I'm like, honestly, if you're, and if you're miserable sober, like, I mean, not every day is going to be perfect, but if you're really miserable, like you should just keep getting high because I was miserable. I mean, the whole point of getting sober was to be joyous and happy yeah. and free. And so it's like, if I'm going to just be sober and, and still unhappy and not purpose-driven and not connected and not... Um, tapped in, then I'll just go back to getting high because I can I can be miserable and high, and that's better, right? <laughs> you know, right, so it's like right. you really have right. to like really tap into what your purpose is. Yeah, yeah. There's that old adage that you can't make someone change; they have to want to change. And then there's this idea of people have to hit rock bottom to have a moment where they want to change. Um, but what we're kind of seeing now is a lot of people's rock bottoms is death. Is there an in-between? I mean, you kind of shared with us your story a little bit of one day just being like, I got to get clean. Yeah. Which is maybe unexplainable. Maybe it's a God thing. Maybe it's, you know, whatever that was inside of you that did that. But in your experience, is there any in-between between you can't make somebody change so they have to wait to want to change and the urge that I'm sure many of us have for people that we love that have addictions where we're just like, is there nothing we can do? Yeah. Is there nothing? Can we chain you down and do this? You know, the different things that the families or loved ones of people in addiction get to, like, is there any medium there or is it just everything is individual? Yeah. I remember my dad saying he was going to hog tie me down and just like force recovery on me somehow. Right. Like, can we just chain you down and recover you? I don't, you know, I don't know where I land. I, I go back and forth on that all the time. I think mm-hmm. about that all the time. Like, because working in treatment is like sometimes kind of a mystery, right? Like sometimes there's people who I th- like think for sure I've got it. And then they relapse like the day they leave. And there's people who I'm like, I'm not sure how that's going to go. And then they call me a year later and like, I'm sober, I'm doing great. And so I don't know really like what does it exactly? Like, what is it that it's kind of inexplicable? Um, but I do think that like, so in Long Island <clears throat> where I was working, at the time I was working there, the fentanyl crisis was just insane. Like yeah. everybody was dying all the time. It's probably the reason why I left. I just, I lost some very close friends and community members. And I was like, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was like, I'm tapped out. You know, I was, I was getting really burned out. And so a lot of times like the idea of rock bottom was like, you're kidding me, right? Like they're going to be dead before they hit rock bottom. We need to do anything we can to try and help this person now. Um, and so I, I think that, I think that in order to, and 
I think part of my recovery, honestly, when I, when I first got sober, part of what I told myself is I'll just get sober for like three months so I can get some money in the bank and go on a good run. Like I'm yeah. tired of scrapping and trying to like scrounge and save and have like 20 bucks or whatever. And so I'll, I'll get my family off my back, get some money in the bank and I'll go on a run. And so that wasn't really like, and then, but here I am still sober. So like mm-hmm. that wasn't really a commitment for me, right? That was just kind of doing it for another reason. And so I think that eventually that changed for me. Like eventually mm-hmm. I really did have to come to a place where this, I'm doing it for me. Cause at this point in time now, I have money and my family is off my back. And if that, and so those don't work anymore. And so right. I need to really come to terms with what I want. So I think somewhere along the line, it does have to become a commitment to the individual, but I don't think that's a precursor to recovery. I certainly don't think it should be a, a barrier. Like mm-hmm. nobody should be gatekept if they're ambivalent. Pretty much every client I've ever met is ambivalent, right? Because you're asking them to like give up a part of themselves. Mm-hmm. It's really like grieving. I'm, when I stopped using, it was like losing the love of my life. It was like, this is the thing that had always taken care of me. Um, so of course I'm not just going to be like, all right, let's do it. You know, I was like, I don't know if I want this. And part of me wants to do it for myself and part of me doesn't. Um, and so, yeah, I think long story short, eventually you have to come to terms with it if you want to have long-term sobriety, but it doesn't have to be, um, like a contingency of, of starting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How long from when you entered treatment to when you started doing peer counseling? How many years was that? I want to say like maybe a year, maybe even less, which like honestly looking back, I probably shouldn't have. It was probably too soon. And counselors have a pretty high relapse rate too. My Mm -hmm. understanding is that counselors in recovery have a pretty high relapse rate. And so, and I don't think I was really equipped at the time to be doing what I was doing, but it kept me sober and maybe I helped some people. I hope so. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Um, But it was was pretty quickly afterwards. It was like a year. Um, maybe even nine months. Wow. What was the detox process for you? Did you start to wean yourself off before you went into recovery or did you go in having to go into detox first? Oh yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. Actually, you know, what happened was that living in California, I was using heroin and I was, I tried to stop every, it was the craziest thing. It was like every morning I would wake up and be like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pick up today. I'm not gonna get high today. And then it was like, I would always think back to, I watched this claymation thing when I was a kid called Wallace and Gromit, which- I love Wallace and Gromit, yeah. There's this one uh, episode where he's, I guess was Wallace the guy and Gromit's the dog. I don't know. I can't remember. I think Wallace is the guy. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he has these mechanical pants that move for him and he's like sleeping in them and they're walking like up the wall and he's yeah. totally like unaware. And that's what it felt like. I was like not in control of my own body. You know, I would like, I would like black out and then I'd wake up three hours later and I'd have, I'd have heroin, I'd be using it. I'd be like, how did that happen again? Right. So I was trying to stop. And uh, my family went out to New York to visit some, I was living in the Bay area and we went out to New York to visit some of my cousins and for Christmas. And when I got out there, I had asked one of my cousins to give me some pain pills. I told him I was taking like Percocets. I totally lied. And uh, when he got there, he was like, you're, you're not, you know, you're, you're a junkie man. Like you're, you're messed up. And so he didn't, he didn't give me anything. Thank God. And Mm -hmm. I started going to withdrawals. And I just basically just canceled my t- plane ticket back home. I just saw an opportunity. I was already like three or four days in. I was really sick. And I was like, let me just get this over with now, you know? Yeah. And um, and so I went through withdrawals and and luckily he had some other, you know, substances to help kind of get me through it in a certain way. Uh, but it was pretty rough. It was mm-hmm. a pretty rough thing. And, um, and I stopped using opiates, but I continued to use other substances, mainly benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm. And then I... I went to a hospital to withdraw from those. Uh, and that was just that experience alone. Like trying to get into a hospital for detox is like impossible. Forget mm-hmm. it. Like the first hospital I went to, I was too intoxicated. They wouldn't let me in. And, and the second hospital I went to, they tried to say the same thing. And luckily I had been working with a pure advocate at the time. And he was, he probably saved my life. He was like, he basically, and maybe this is a, you know, the wrong thing to do. I don't, I don't know. Maybe as if there's any like nurses listening, maybe they're like, oh my God, these people are the worst, you know, do this. But basically I was so intoxicated and he was like, look, they weren't going to let me in. He said, um, he started taking out everybody's names. He said, I want to, I'm going to wait in the parking lot when this kid overdoses and dies. I want to know who I'm suing, you know, and, and basically just create enough of a kick that they let, they let me in for five days and, and I detoxed. Um, and even then after like two days, I called my family and I was like, get me out of here. I was like, I'm good. I'm, I'm cured. You know, I'm ready. Yeah. Thankfully they didn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thankfully they said, no, you're staying. Nobody's picking you up. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, it was a pretty, it was a pretty rough process. Detox is a huge barrier to care for a mm-hmm. lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Your family, what did they do during the time that you were in addiction to your time of recovery? Did they draw lines in the sand with you? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Thank God they did too. It's funny. It's like when you're coaching families, it's like my least favorite thing to do because it's so, because there's no right answer when like right. a like a mom is like, what do I do with my kid? The usual like classic thing is the kid's living in my house and he's using and the options are, do I kick him out or do I let him stay? And it's like, well, if I kick him out and he dies, I'll never forgive myself. But if I let him stay and he, and he overdoses and dies, I'll never forgive myself. And it's like, there's no really good answer in a certain way. You're kind of just are playing <clears throat> this really horrifying game of, of poker where you're just sort of wait, like waiting to see if they'll call your bluff first or like who's going to crack first, right? Okay. It's like, who's going to, is he going to die or am I going to let him back in the house? Or, And so my parents actually did, they did lock the doors and said, the moment that you're ready to go to treatment, we, you have our full support, our full love. We will take care of everything. We will help you with everything you need. But until then, we can't, we can't do it anymore. And um, actually, my, my grandparents ended up breaking first. They ended up taking mm-hmm. me in. Um, and who knows, that was, maybe it was for the better, maybe it was for the worse. I'm not really sure. But my parents did draw lines in the sand yeah. for sure. Yeah. By the time they really realized, like, they were pretty pretty liberal people in a certain way. Like a lot of people in the Bay Area, it's like, oh, the kids want to smoke some weed, drink some alcohol, whatever is fine. And then by the time they realized like what was happening, um, they really started setting some pretty hard lines. Yeah. And in, in, I'm, I'm love that, I mean, I love that you grew up in the Bay Area because that's such a like city in America right now that's getting like a lot of attention yeah. for like their open drug scenes and and a lot of what's going on there and how the drug crisis is being handled by the city yeah. um and and all over California and in and, and the West Coast but between the the open drug scenes the homeless encampments where in your opinion do we start to make our streets safer but also provide treatment for people or or get people into recovery because it's one thing for people to be like I just want to be able to safely walk down the street without not that someone asking you for money is not safe, but if they're severely mentally ill and using yeah. to cover up those symptoms or in a psychotic break, like yeah. um, I told a story on an earlier episode of um, someone had a psychotic break in a gym that I worked in after being on some substance yeah. and attacked several of us, yeah. which it ca- definitely caused PTSD for sure. me as far as like yeah. <laughs> when when I hear screaming, I'm immediately yeah. like, someone's about to punch me. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> so in your opinion, where it, where do we start with that? How do we have compassion for those people, but also keep our citizens safe and keep our cities clean? For sure. Yeah. Like San Francisco is, is pretty wild. Like there's a, there's a part of San Francisco that I frequented pretty often in the Tenderloin and I won't give the exact cross streets for obvious reasons, but it's often known as Pill Hill. And it's basically like an above ground black market, right? It's like you get anything you want and the cops don't, it's sort of sectioned off. It's its own little, like, it's like, all right, we just keep it sort of here. I remember one of the first times I was there and I, I, and I went to go buy this from this guy, he pulled out a machete and I was like, oh my God, I'm about to get stabbed. And it turns out he was just using the machete to like, you know, cut off a sliver of, of, of heroin but i you know it's like terrifying right yeah, and like you, know, yeah. you didn't know where you were and you just like wandered into that street so i mean it's clearly it's like you know i don't think addicts or homeless are inherently like dangerous but right. it, you know if it can create unsafe scenarios i think for me really like oh, the way to address that is harm reduction i know it's like kind of a controversial thing and i don't like the name of it but i think shooting galleries are a, like a you know or safe injection sites is what they'd be actually called or are a good thing. I mean, if you if you want to give people treatment and destigmatize and clean up the streets, I don't think that I don't know any the, the argument against it is usually it's going to encourage people, right? Right. I don't know any non-IV heroin users who if a safe injection site opened would be like I'm going to go do heroin and shoot up, right? Like that's it's not going to it doesn't go like that, right? So, I think if you want to have safer neighborhoods and get people connected to treatment, you need to have places where they can use safely and then you have an opportunity to actually reach them. Mm. That's what I think. I mean, if you look at the, like, if you look at any major city that does have safe injection sites, like overdose rates basically non-existent um, because you can, you can bring them, you can resuscitate the person immediately if they overdose. <clears throat> Linkage to care is way higher. HIV rates way lower. 
um, and crime in the surrounding areas tends to be lower. Mm -hmm. So not a lot of crime that happens in those areas anymore. So I think that that's that's the answer is 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 harm reduction. Do you know anything about um, like drug courts and using drug courts as a as a way to get people into recovery versus like just straight to incarceration or? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like, so like Portugal has a good model for that, mm -hmm. right? Like Portugal decriminalized everything. And again, this is a fairly like liberal approach to things. And, right. so, and it's, I'm not sure if it translates from a smaller country to a country of our size and with our infrastructure. But yeah, I mean, like drug courts are like a little mini version of what Portugal does, right? Which is that mm -hmm. basically like instead of going straight to, to criminalization, it goes into treatment first. Mm -hmm. I don't know a ton about... Hawaii's drug courts. I know some people have gone through it. I know that it's pretty intense, like pretty strict, um, which I think is probably a good thing. Like the people I know who have passed through it have stayed sober and it's been good for them. But I also think it doesn't give a whole lot of leeway. Like, you know, which again, I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't really mm -hmm. know enough about the statistics. I haven't thought about it as much as I should, but I do think definitely we need to move away from criminalization. Mm -hmm. I think that's clear for sure. Um, to what extent we do that and how we do that, I think is kind of op open for discussion. But um, using like diversion programs, like I was supposed to do, I was supposed to go to jail for like two years and I got a diversion program instead. I have no idea what my life would look like if I did two years in jail. Those were really like two crucial years for me. Like in those two years, I ended up getting sober actually, right? And so, yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, I, 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 pro I think that if I probably went to jail for two years, I'd probably be in a very different place than I am right now. So mm -hmm. I'm living, sort of living proof. I mean, it's hard because you don't have a control experiment. Who knows, right? But right. Um, but chances are probably good the diversion saved my life. So mm -hmm. From the drug dealer perspective, how do we address more of that? Because that's a law enforcement issue as well. And so I, I guess, because right, if, if the supply is not there, and it's harder to get the thing that you're addicted to. Is it easier than to get people into, you know what I mean? To yeah. get into recovery or. Yeah. I mean, I think that we need to look at the, I mean, drug dealers, that's rough for sure. But I think we really need to look at the institutions that support addiction. Right. So like, you know, Purdue got a lot of heat obviously during the opioid crisis, but mm -hmm. like not nearly as much as they should have. And there was also a lot of other companies that were big, like companies you wouldn't think of like Walgreens and stuff that were, they were, had pharmacies that were involved in kickback, you know, mm, programs right. and stuff like that, that like didn't get any public key, didn't get any court of public opinion. And largely for the most part, I mean, I think a few people in Purdue got arrested and there were some consequences, but I think for the most part, a lot of people walked away with a lot of money and basically scot-free. Um, and I mean, when you look at like a dealer, it's, it has like a much, obviously a much dirtier like connotation to it. Right. But like when you look at the actual number, like amount of, that's being distributed, like it's institutions, right, that are doing that, especially with opioids. I mean, if you're talking about other substances, it's different because opioids are illegal. Right. And so we can dispense them. If you're looking at like cocaine or something like that, it's a different, it's a different thing. But I, I don't know. I think controlling the dealers is like, I think it's a hard thing to do. I think the drugs are going to come in no matter what. Like, even if you arrest, I mean, it's, we should keep working on it. But I think that, you know, if you arrest, well, I mean, there's so much coming in from cartels in South America and so much fentanyl being diverted from China. It's like, it's hard to really, control that i think i think it's i think there's, it's easier to look at treatment than it mm -hmm. is like trying to stop the influx right you know right but i think that if anything we really need to look at like like stopping the demand before you stop the supply yeah exactly or or providing good solutions to the demand i mean i think that yeah it'd be great to stop the demand and the supply but i think that it's i don't know if it's if it's possible i think it's mm -hmm. i think it's better to address like where the, what are, do we have at least first like we need to have good solutions yeah like let's let's at least have like some bandages ready to stop the bleeding before we figure out how do we like, you know, in the hospital, they're not trying to figure out how, like how to stop shootings on the street. They're trying to figure out like, how do I stop the bleeding right now? Right. Like we're bleeding out as a country. We need to figure out like, how do we stop the bleeding triage, get that done. And then we can look at mm. like some of that, those steps that led to that. Yeah. Yeah. I've read a lot about the tenderloin. Um, did you experience cartels there from other countries? Was there a lot of people from other countries? Probably, I mean, there was, yeah. Mm. There was like distinct groups, usually racial or ethnic groups that, that had like each sort of block had its own little like, you know, um, there's African-Americans and there's South Americans and there's Caucasians and there was sort of each, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know what that was. That could have been gang, could have been cartel, could have just been that 
they wanted to hang out with people who have, you know, right. share the same race, race or ethnicity. I don't really know. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But it's a pretty crazy place. Yeah. Pretty crazy place. Yeah. Yeah. And like some of the most, some of the most interesting experiences in that area of the Tenderloin where it was actually felt very safe to me. Surprisingly, once I got past the initial sort of shock of it, because no nobody there benefits from having police involved. Like nobody there wants police coming there. Mm-hmm. And so uh, everybody felt, felt like everybody was kind of trying their best to avoid that because nobody would benefit from that. You know uh, what I mean? Yeah. Everybody there had something that they didn't want police being involved with. Right, right, so right. Everybody was was motivated to not have violence and not have like crime there because then police really do have to get involved. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. One of the big parts of addiction, I think, too, in our country is mental health and especially severely mentally ill individuals that um, because we don't have these larger institutions anymore where these people can can be housed, a lot of the community resources aren't enough to work with these individuals. Um, Did you experience a lot of that um, in your time in the Tenderloin or now out of recovery or do you still see a lot of that yeah it's a good question i think like i think it was in long island that there was a big institution what was it king's park i can't remember what it was called um just like a huge like like what you imagine when you think about like an old school like psych ward like you know it's like kind of a gothic castle looking thing right and they had been sort of transitioning to community-based care instead, which I think is a great idea, like deinstitutionalizing people and giving people an opportunity to like live in their own homes and have support in their homes. And and um, like be, being, a lot of people really can be productive members of society if you give them the the support and the context to do that. If you just lock them up, it's kind of hard to do that, right? But I think that we kind of canceled A without B mm-hmm. being really like flushed out yet. Like, like for example, in the UK, like the UK is really good mental health community support teams right like people who like come to your house and crisis teams and like really well put together peer workers and crisis workers and i don't know how well we have that done yet so i I like the idea of deinstitutionalizing for people for the vast majority of people unless they really really cannot function on their own Mm -hmm. um but if you're gonna like do that then you have to actually give people the support yeah i mean like like for example in maui like um Every year, every three years, Kaiser hospitals have to do like a community needs health assessment, right? Which is basically where they like look at through a bunch of different channels. They look at what the community needs health wise. Mm-hmm. And basically, if I remember correctly, in 2000, I think it was 2019, they did it. Like access to care was, was the number one, like, um, what do you call that? When you have like a bunch of words up and like the one word that's the biggest. Or right. I yeah, remember, I know. But, it, but I like, know that's where like all the community members had said like access to care, right? Yeah. So there's like, you know, if you deinstitutionalize people or or want people to get help, you have to actually give them mm-hmm. the resources to do that. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I think I I've done a lot of reading on that too, just about the push to end those larger state funded institutions because they had gotten so mismanaged, yeah. and going to that community model, but then the community is not having the resources yeah. either or the staff to do it. Yeah. So, like you said. Ending A without B being flushed out. Um, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, like it's great. Like those big institutions were pretty. A lot of times, like pretty archaic and pretty sick in a lot right. of ways. Some of them are good. You know, it's not a generalization, but there's a lot of like a lot of unethical things that that occur sure. in those big institutions that people just fell through the cracks for a long time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we don't have the resources right now to really support the mm-hmm. alternative. Yeah, I think that's it's, it's that question of like funding from city, state, and then federal. And obviously this podcast is about local communities, but that being involved in your local community, this is one of the reasons it's important because you can vote to have funds funneled to the things that are supporting real recovery or real help in your community versus at the state or federal level of these giant institutions where things do get mismanaged. Yeah, it's also actually possible. Like it can feel like when you're looking at a federal like policy level, like there's no way that one person can actually even begin to touch that, right? Like, mm-hmm. but on like a county level, you actually can. Like, if you really advocate and really like, if you you can you can vote and your vote matters. And I mean, I guess it always does, but it feels like it matters more sometimes at a county level about yeah. where funds go and and what policies go into place. And you can actually make differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, one, uh, two more questions before we go. I just uh, wanted to ask you, what advice do you have someone for someone who might be listening who thinks, maybe I, I do have a problem. This is an addiction that I have. What would you say to that person? Yeah, that's like always <laughs> where I want to end here. Right? It's like yeah. always, it's like my, my ending. But really, I don't know. I haven't like really gotten, I've done a lot of these. I've never really gotten a good like tagline where like that feels good. Cause I don't know if there is really a good tagline <laughs> right, for somebody right. who's like an active addiction, but yeah. usually I just say just don't, don't give up and, 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 and seek out help. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of, there are a lot of resources. I mean, there's, we've talked about lack of resources, but there are, there are resources yeah. in the community and you can get help and, um, and it gets better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then one question that I ask all my guests to wrap up uh, the episode is if you could sit down with anyone alive or dead and have a conversation like me and you had today, who would you like to sit down with? That's a great question. <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, probably there's like probably like a, a better answer than this. or I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But my my grandma was when I was in active addiction and my parents were trying to figure out what to do. My grandma was like, and I don't think she really realized the extent to which. Um, I was how deep I was in it, but she was basically like she was an old Italian woman. She was like chicken, chicken noodle soup and love is is what this kid needs. <laughs> and at the time, I was like, no, I need like like meds and a doctor and like help, you know. Yeah. And and then like actually, the further I've gone in my recovery, I'm like, it's actually not that. <laughs> it's not untrue. Actually, that is sort yeah. of in a sort of fundamental way. And so I think I probably wanted. She she passed away. Um. I had I'd gotten sober by the time she passed away, but I was pretty early That's in my journey. So I think yeah. I'd probably just sit down with her and and tell her actually chicken noodle soup and love actually was not a bad <laughs> not a bad idea. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I love that answer. Well, thank you so much for um, joining me today and and sharing your journey and and what Maui recovery is all about uh, with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being a listener of Conversation Mill. The podcast is growing, but we need your continued support in the form of comments, likes, and subscriptions. If you've enjoyed even one episode, please take two minutes to comment under the episode or the podcast itself, or rate the podcast. Hitting the subscribe button wherever you listen to the podcast helps tremendously. Every like and subscribe helps me support local businesses and local nonprofits by giving them a platform to tell their stories. Together, we can foster the understanding, diversity, and economies that make our individual communities flourish, while creating our own community here at Conversation Mill. Also, you can join us at conversationmill.substack.com where you can become a member and receive weekly member-only content, including member-only episodes. I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you next week. And as always, thank you for your support.